Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. At the age of 20, my guest on the podcast today made the brave decision to confirm if he was carrying the gene for Huntington's disease, a rare inherited disease that causes the progressive breakdown of nerve cells in the brain. Huntington's disease has a wide impact on a person's functional abilities and usually results in movement thinking and psychiatric disorders. In this podcast, he describes how the diagnosis was made and the circumstances around which that information was relayed to him. Here to tell his story is Seth Rothberg. Seth, you're very welcome to this call. And before we started, we had the video on and I could see that you look perfectly well. And yet, the story you're about to tell us attests to the fact that things are, f- are far different from that, that you have an illness which hasn't fully manifested at this point. Tell us about how that diagnosis was established. I'll take you back to when we learned that our family was impacted by Huntington's disease. And it really started early on in my life, probably when I was about 12 or so. That's when we started noticing my mom seemed just a little different with poor balance and wobbly movements and slurred speech where kind of like these drunk-like movements but then kind of have these mood swings, one moment perfectly fine, and next she's has an outburst or frustrated or, or simply depressed. And I think what was challenging is we weren't getting the answers I think we were kind of looking for because the doctors just labeled it as major depression and bipolar disorder. And then a few years later when this was still happening and it just got to the point where we had to have an intervention with my mom and discuss this with a few other family members and then have her go through a bunch of these different tests and evaluations where we learned that she actually had Huntington's disease, which is a, you know, family, it's, it's not just an individual diagnosis, it's a family diagnosis, but also there's no family history for this. So this is all pretty new to all of us to realize that, oh, all these years she was dealing with this rare neurological degenerative condition that impacts someone 10 to 20 for 10 to 20 years and so I was officially 15 years old when when learning about all this and you know turning to Google to kind of check off all the symptoms that I noticed in her and it was it was definitely tough those first couple of years because I think she was trying to process it my dad was trying to process it my sister and I were trying to process it like the whole family was trying to process this whole thing and trying to accept it as a part of our life for the rest of our lives. Because you see someone, your loved one, go through something like this, and yet there's nothing you can do about it except to watch them slowly deteriorate, both physically and mentally. And to kind of give a, a background on Huntington's disease, it is a neurological disease. It is, It does impact someone both physically and mentally. And unfortunately, there's no cure. Uh, there's about 40,000 Americans with it, another 200,000 at risk, because each child of a parent with it has a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. And it wasn't until 
five years later at the age of 20, I decided to go through genetic testing. And that's not an easy decision to, to kind of just go through. Because once you kind of do it, there's no turning back. Once you know that, that bit of information, you then have to deal with that and understand that and grasp that. And so, in fact, a lot of people who are at risk actually don't go through genetic testing because they're like, there's no treatment. So what's the point where, you know, myself and others who have gone through it are kind of like, well, I want to plan and I want to know what, what this what this entails for my future and how do I best prepare for it. That was an incredibly brave decision. When you think about it, you, you watched what had happened to your mom and you were asking to know, is this going to happen to me? Tell us a bit more about the experience of getting that diagnosis. When going through it, I think one of the things that I learned was that one is that, like I mentioned before, there's no turning back. But two, one, my whole process took about two weeks. Usually going through something such as this can last a lot longer. And you go through genetic counseling and you make sure that you have your support system and everything. And I did it a little bit differently where I got a referral through my primary care to a neurologist, shared a little bit about my family background history, and then I was a sophomore in college and not really telling many people about it. So I had a few friends who knew. And then when I went back for my results, that's when they told me that I tested positive for it and that I'm guaranteed to get it one day and end up like my mom. I don't remember much else because I'm trying to process all of this. And I just kind of, I guess you can say blacked out and just was kind of thinking about what, what my next steps were. Like, who am I going to tell? What does this mean for my future career, future family, and just like anything else that this disease is now going to impact? And, and so it was a lot to process. It actually took me a few years to tell my family because I never wanted my mom to know. I didn't want to worry my older sister, my dad, my dad being the caregiver to my mom. And then my older sister, I didn't want her to feel pressured to feel like she would have to go through testing. But most importantly, I didn't want my mom to ever find out because she was already suffering. She was already digressing, and I didn't want her to have to then worry about me as well. But, you know, it it changed kind of a lot about my life. In a way, it was great because it made me appreciate the little things in life and understanding life is too short. But at the same time, it also, everything I saw in my mom, I said, that could be me one day. Everything I saw in, in friends who are part of the community, that that could be me one day. And so mentally, it also took a huge toll on me because of just kind of experiencing that and saying, will there, will there be a treatment in time for me to either slow it down or reverse it or, or do anything? Or do I really want to go through the same thing my mom went through for 17 years before her passing away? I think that was the big challenge, to be honest, is I don't know if I want to go through that, to be, to be quite frank, is because you see that and you're like, that isn't what I would want to do, if that makes sense. You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa.
I want to explore the mechanics of this as you've described it. I think I've heard you talk about this before and you say that you were given the diagnosis over the phone. Is that right? I was in person. There are people I know who who gotten it over the phone. And it just, you would think that just in our society, knowing something like that, that you would make sure that they're in person. I think one of the challenges is that even when you get the results, at least from my own experience, there wasn't any follow-up. I remember seeing my paper that had the results in it. I think it asked me to follow up within six months. And I'm a 20-year-old kid at the time. I'm like, that's the last thing that's on my mind. And so imagine if when someone gets results of having a Huntington's disease or any other genetic condition that not only does someone follow up, but they give you resources. They tell you about nonprofits or patient advocacy organizations in the community. And they make sure that you have that proper support while trying to process all this. And then on the other hand is that I think people outside the community were my friends and others. At one point, it's like awesome because they're very supportive. But then they're like, oh, like, don't think about it and, and don't deal with it. I'm like, well, it's hard not to think about it, right? And it's hard not to just have that be a part of my life because – Yes, it doesn't define who I am, but it is a part of my story. It is a part of the work I do in the healthcare space, both personally as well as professionally. But also, it's not an easy decision to go through genetic testing. And I think that's the, the big challenge that I think it's important for people to realize. It's, it's not an easy decision, especially when you see a family member go through it for such a long time. So that's something you have to really consider. And that's something I really considered. And still think about looking back of not necessarily do I regret anything, but, you know, at times it is tough to know that this will impact my future and that it impacts some of my different types of relationships with, with different people. It is possible now to get genetic testing for all manner of conditions, some of them chronic long-term, some of them incurable. Is it your experience that people can, if they have a mind to, access something with those kind of implications without follow-up? I I would say so. I mean, there's these different tests that will tell you that you might be at risk for a certain condition, whether it's like Alzheimer's or maybe the BRCA gene. And, And I think the challenge there is like, I don't know how much follow up there is. Or they put it on the patient to follow up, even though in reality, it's scary and it's a lot to process. And you're kind of like, what do I do next? And I think there's no like perfect step-by-step guideline. But if you can connect them to those nonprofits or to doctors that are specialized in the space or just kind of make them aware of what's out there, even you look at social media searching a hashtag if i searched a hashtag for huntington's disease i'd come across other people and then it's like reaching out to them and that's i didn't do that because it wasn't as popular when first knowing about it but i did join like a aol chat room where it was like anonymous and i was able to chat with others in the community and it just felt great to know that i wasn't alone that i didn't feel that sense of isolation 
saying, okay, I'm not, I'm the only one dealing with it. And then when finding out that there's other young adults who are at risk or impacted in, in some capacity with Huntington's disease, that made things a lot more manageable because I just felt like I could easily connect with them. They would understand me without me having to explain myself. And that's something that I think is very special and very important for people is knowing you're not alone, knowing there are people out there. It's just a matter of finding the people who are willing to listen to you and and the people that are willing to be there for you as well. There'll be nobody listening to this call today who will not feel for the 20-year-old Seth who was given this diagnosis and left to find his own support. And I think I express concern on behalf of us all in saying that. But you are an extraordinary young man and you've managed to find that support. I was intrigued when I listened to your other conversations about what happened when you eventually spoke to your your dad and then to your sister. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? When you think about just the mind and how it works, we have all these thoughts and all these what-if situations and we tend to overthink things and that's definitely how it went and how it still is with me is I tend to overthink or overanalyze a lot and at at that time that was kind of why I was so nervous to share it because I didn't want my dad or my sister or others to worry about me. I always felt like I had to be the strong one and so I was like you know what I I don't want them to worry about me I'm going to be okay I'm going to deal with this kind of on my own. But then what kind of changed my mentality was when I was in college and then a few years later, I lost a a few friends who were were young age and it made me just realize how short life is. One was a good friend from college. He unfortunately passed away in our senior year of college and it was very challenging to kind of deal with that especially being a a young person myself and then another person another friend of mine shared the juvenile version of Huntington's disease which progresses a lot faster but with both of them they're kind of living in the moment they always brought the best out of other people and my friend who had this juvenile version she was always sharing her story and so it made me realize I really want to share my story yes I was sharing about my mom's condition and raising awareness but it's time to switch it to my own personal story. But for me to do that, I, had, I realized I had to be open with my dad, my sister, aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, and whatnot. And so when I told my, my, when I told my dad, it, it was tough to do, but I'll kind of sum it up. And essentially, he was totally okay with it. He was very positive. He's a very positive person. And he knows that we got to take things one step at a time and continue to raise awareness and money and hope that there's a treatment. And then with my older sister, she understood it and her her views are, are, are different from mine where she isn't ready to get tested and that's totally fine. So I told her when, when she is ready that I'll be there and I'm happy to answer any questions. And so overall, like telling them and telling my other family members, like, 
they all were very receptive and understood it. I think the other thing, though, it was that once I was more open with it, people may have not known how to react to it because they're like, okay, how do I treat you? Do I ask you how you're doing each day or do I still treat you the same? And I always said, treat me the same. I'm not, I don't change, I'm not changing overnight, overnight. I'm still the same, same Seth. And so it, it was just, there's that piece of it, but then the other piece of social media, right? And I'm very involved in healthcare space. I've done a TED talk on, on my own story. And so anyone could Google me or, or search me up. Unfortunately, there's no other, or maybe it's fortunately, but there's no other Seth Rothberg out there. <laughs> and so it's easy to find me and find my story, which I'm fine with. But I always tell people to be prepared because once your story's out there, similar to testing, there's no going back. And so making sure that you're comfortable with that, both the pros and then, of course, the cons, because, you know, especially when it comes to, I'll just say romantic partners, it's tougher for me to want to share, but also not to share it too fast because I don't want them to define me by it. I don't want them to treat me differently or say, okay, like this isn't for me because I don't want to deal with this. And so I think these are all the things that I'm always thinking of and I'm always trying, trying to figure out. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I go back to the original situation where you sought the diagnosis or you sought the, the test and the responsibility for supporting the person in this situation. If you were to craft a mechanism whereby people were able to get the diagnosis when they're ready what would that look like in the huntington's disease community at least in the u.s it's going to vary depending on the country and whatnot but you know there's these neurologists who specialize you know in huntington's disease and so my first thing is always making sure that you go to someone that's not just saying, yeah, I've heard of it, or yeah, I know Huntington's, but hey, I treat other Huntington's disease patients. Because it's going to make things a lot more manageable. It's going to be easier to navigate because they're going to know the ins and outs of it. I think the other important part is seeing a genetic counselor. They're very understanding, but more importantly, they just are a good resource and will make sure that you're prepared no matter what, because even if you do test negative, if you have another brother or sister at risk, you might feel like you have that survivor's guilt. You're like, I would rather deal with it than my sibling. And so I would say those are the two bigger ones of seeing someone that's familiar with it, as well as a genetic counselor, and then making sure you have your support system with you during the whole testing process. I, I did bring a friend for my results, but she was in the waiting room, not necessarily in the, in the doctor's office, which is a little odd that they didn't say, oh, bring your support system in. And so I think that's another essential piece. And then finally, you know, depending on your results, is that making sure the doctor, genetic counselor, they follow up 
even if it's just six months later, just saying, hey, just wanted to check in, see how things are going. And just giving you that option of like, hey, I'm here whenever you're ready to talk. I'm not going to force you to talk to me, but hey, just in case you're, you're interested or, or need some additional support. And then getting those resources, whether it's some websites that have some good information on, on the condition, you know, patient advocacy organizations to get involved with, any support groups, just trying to give them a list of resources that they can go to. I mean, you can find a lot of things on, on social media, so maybe it's certain hashtags or Facebook groups, things like that. So that's my thought on making sure someone has the, the right resources and support when learning about a, a health condition that is going to impact them not just today, but in their future as well. Seth, what's been happening since you got the diagnosis? How have things unfolded for you? I used my test results as motivation to get more involved in the community. So I took on different leadership roles with these different nonprofits. I'm still doing these fundraisers, joining boards, trying to share share my story. And then that next level took place when I did a TED Talk on my story in my hometown. And that was what opened the door for me because I realized, one, is that everyone has a story to share. It's just a matter of crafting it towards the right audience. But two, it also made me realize, hey, I, I enjoy helping people and also making sure that they know I'm here to help them navigate their health condition, whether it's Huntington's disease or a different one. And I just like to connect people, connect them to another community member or someone else that's going to be helpful. But it also helped craft my career. I, I work professionally in healthcare space. I started working in it in like the online community space to working with patient advocates or patient influencers to raise awareness about different treatment options, but getting their voice heard more when it comes to the healthcare space to now helping in the clinical trial space when it comes to supporting clinical trial recruitment. And so all these things are great, but I, I've also shared my own personal story to really infuse that patient voice into the healthcare system early and throughout drug development. Because a lot of times when you see these different clinical trials and it, it continues to happen, which it, it surprises me, and this is where I think we can make a change of guidelines, but a lot of these pharmaceutical biotech companies are looking for the perfect patient. And I always make the analogy of it's like a dating app where you keep swiping until you think you found someone and then it might work out, but it may not work out. And so it's kind of like they look for the perfect patient and then they have to, their trials delayed or, or, and as it continues to get delayed or they're having trouble finding patients, they're losing money too. And so this can easily be improved by working with patient advocacy organizations or patient advocates as consultants who can come in, give feedback on the clinical trial design and protocol, and really help improve the clinical trial experience for patients. And that's something that I, I'm also passionate about of helping because if you look also at Huntington's disease, even though I have the gene, I'm not clinically diagnosed, so therefore I can't participate in any studies, 
even though I know I'm guaranteed to get it, and even though I'm willing to take a risk to participate in a study. And so that's something else that I'm personally trying to work on is how do we look at Huntington's disease differently so that people who are pre-symptomatic like myself can make that decision of, hey, yes, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to deal with the potential side effects because right now the people who make those decisions, whether it's the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, or your pharmaceutical companies, they're not asking patients, what do you want? And I think that's what you know, myself and a few other community advocates are trying to do is change the way we look at it by bringing in that patient voice and saying, hey, we have community data saying that pre-symptomatic patients are willing to take that risk, that are willing to participate in a trial now, because I don't want to wait until I'm sick because then it's going to be too late to treat me. And maybe I don't want to go through that whole journey and go through what my mom went through. So these are the things I'm trying to work on with others to collaborate and, and figure out how do we improve that clinical trial experience, the patient experience, and not just make it a checkbox to say, hey, okay, we spoke with Seth, and Seth said this, and okay, that's cool, but hey, okay, let's actually implement that into our clinical trial strategy as a pharmaceutical company to really bring this full circle. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. That's an extraordinary amount of work and effort in a space where you're right, you have incredible insight. How close are we to the point where we can turn off the gene that causes the problem? I have looked at a a lot of publications and articles to see where we're at. And we have made a lot of progress. And it's very exciting. And and research is very tough in, in any condition. And so I don't want to take that away from anyone that's been working on it to say, hey, yeah, it's, it's this easy and we can just do X, Y, and Z. It's not that. It's saying, how do we collaborate to work alongside the community who is willing to participate or willing to give feedback and, and help accelerate research? Now, to turn off the gene, I wish it was that easy. And that's what I think some people thought. But turning it off can actually impact different parts of the body. and so. Some people are looking at lowering the Huntington gene in some capacity. Others are looking at different parts of the brain to say, okay, like someone with Huntington's disease may have higher levels of neurofilament light chain or higher or lower levels of your, your striatum. Or again, not a researcher, so I'm just kind of throwing out these terms. But the point is, is like if we can stabilize some of these different parts of the brain, that tend to either go up or down in Huntington's disease patients, then it might help improve the overall disease. There has been a lot of different companies getting involved. When I first learned about it, maybe one or two companies. Now, a lot of them are in preclinical, but 20 to 30 plus different companies working in the space. And that's really exciting. It's more of who's going to be the one that's going to say, hey, we want to offer our study to 
those who are pre-symptomatic, who are willing to take that risk, who is willing to sign that informed consent form to participate in our study, especially if it's right an oral pill, it's not as invasive, I can stop taking that, or a spinal tap, or an IV, right? These are things that you can say, okay, this isn't a good fitter, I'm going to stop taking it versus gene therapy with most most cases, you, you can't reverse it. So to me, it's like, that's not necessarily my first option. I'd rather look at the other options. And then kind of long term, if you think of it like a coffee or a mixed drink, right, you need to kind of mix and match. If you're someone that's like, hey, I want a certain, certain 2% milk, or I want oat milk, I want sugar, I want it steamed or, or whatnot, because right? it's all about trying to test out what's going to work well. Same with like a drink. Like if you're making a cocktail, you want to make the right, you want to have the right ingredient. If you're making dinner, you got to have the right ingredients. And sometimes it's similar to that where maybe one company's treatment option mixed with someone else's could end up being the right formula formula to help slow down the progression of Huntington's disease. I remember at, some, at one point, I think in your TED talk, you talk about your dad's reaction and his reaction was, yeah, that's, that's, it is what it is. They will one day find a cure. And when you reflect back on that conversation, it sounds as if he was right. They are definitely working day and night to get this under control. He, I mean, he is right to an extent, I think, you know, looking back now, my, my big thing is that I really don't use the, the word cure because to me, it, and this is just my personal thoughts, it, it sometimes is false hope, false promise, because you hear about these companies making great strides, and then you're like, well, it could be a cure. But then when it, if it doesn't work out, which, you know, we know 85 to 90% of trials fail, then it's kind of like, all right, we're back to step one. And so you get all excited and you, you get pumped up and then you're like, all right, now we're back to step one. And they are making great strides and there will hopefully be a treatment to slow it down. But I think my personal fear, to be honest, is that it may not be in time for me. And I hope it is. And I hope it is in time for my friends as well. But I remember meeting some some of my friends in the in the community about I don't know, you could say about eight to 10 years ago. And we're, we were kind of all like, yeah, there is a treatment right around the corner or, you know, the researchers are working at it and, and they are. But now some of them are slowly starting to develop symptoms. And I think that's the fear for me is like, okay, I'm next. And what does that look like? Or am I already developing symptoms? Because research does say that changes in the brain can happen 15 plus years prior to clinical diagnosis and so for me it's kind of like okay are there changes happening as you and I are speaking and what do I do about it and are there any things I can do right now that are in my control to help slow it down hopefully also you know participate in a trial when a company offers it uh, to this kind of stage of of Huntington's disease. How can our listeners support your cause where can we find you and what can we do to help you along this journey the biggest thing is just for me is just willing to 
speak with me or, or collaborate with myself and many others in the Huntington's disease space because I've also learned that there's a lot of other communities who are dealing with a genetic condition or, or dealing with this autosomal dominant gene where they're like, hey, I have the gene. I don't have symptoms yet, but I'm guaranteed to get this. How can I make sure that I'm set up and prepared for this? And so I think the big thing is speaking with the community, reaching out to me, whether it's via Twitter or Instagram or going to my website, just www.sethropper.com and sending me a message and saying, hey, let's talk. But I think more importantly, like I want to be seen as not just, all right, Seth's a patient or patient advocate, but Seth's a patient opinion leader, kind of like a key opinion leader. And I think that's the big thing is like seeing me as someone that can help out side by side with them and saying, hey, let's work with them, not necessarily for him. That's kind of my big thing is just would love to find ways to continue to move the needle in, in Huntington's disease. You know, I have fortunately had an opportunity to speak with the FDA uh, to do a patient listening session with some awesome advocates in the community put together like an IRB approved survey to have a lot of community insight. And now it's trying to work with different HD Huntington disease stakeholders to say, hey, let's all come together and talk about what are the next steps so that we can really make this happen. Because at times I've seen it in healthcare, sometimes we work in silos. And so how do we bring everyone together to say, hey, all right, everyone has a role to play, like a sport. If one person doesn't show up or someone doesn't make that play it's going to impact the the overall team and that's how I think we have to look at it of saying how do we work together as a team to really be successful and and get that win. Seth you're a born leader it is pretty obvious that you are a key opinion leader you lead the patient opinion in this and many other conditions we will make sure that your website your twitter handles are all on the show notes with this interview we will urge people to listen to your ted talk which is one of the best i've ever seen it's been a joy spending time with you we wish you all the very best thank you very much i I definitely appreciate it and enjoyed being on the show today the health design podcast serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.